resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the, ch whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Az Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in that matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine and they were to drink and give themselves vegetables. As for those four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of God. Thank you, Rich. We're getting used to these names, and then we're not going to use them anymore. We'll wind up going back to their, their Babylonian names. Um, but before we begin, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to God's word. Lord, um, we thank you that you are with us always. Lord, that you are um, the one who is protecting and guiding and guarding your people. And Lord, we um, navigate this pandemic and the, the ever-changing rules and uh, the the rising and diminishing threats and lord through all of this we know that we can trust you that you will provide and you will care for us that you watch over us and lead us through and so lord thank you for um your care for your people and uh, father i want to pray especially for um, uh, joanne as she's uh, still recovering father we long to see her here in church and i pray that she would um, be gaining strength and would soon be able to join us and so father would you heal her and bless her in her um, convalescence Lord, um, be with us now as we turn to your word. Help us to see and to understand. Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts and, and make it real for us uh, that we might love you more, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. 
So last year, we oh, last year, <laughs> last week, we started the book of Daniel. And uh, I kind of gave a broad overview of what the book was about. But uh, we first were introduced to Daniel and his companions. And what we saw last week, we talked about how it is that God's people can exist in a foreign culture without fear. And so what we saw was Daniel and his friends were able to compromise on a number of things. Um, but I said that this week we'll look at the things they can't compromise on. And so that's what we're going to look at now is, is these things they can't compromise. We're going to ask, why would they do that? What would make them able to do it? And then in the end, hope, what is really hopeful is that we find out how we can do those same things. What, what is it that will help us resist where we need to and know those lines? So the section begins, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, he said that because last week the king had said, I want you to bring all the best and brightest of Judah, the royalty, the smartest, the best looking folks, bring them in and they'll attend Pagan University of Babylon and they will eat the food from my table. Now, that food from his table was not, he didn't eat at Del Taco. This was the best the kingdom had to offer. And he's, he's taking it and he's sharing it with these young men. And, and the idea there is we'll begin to fold them into Babylonian culture. They'll eat our food. They'll drink our wine. They'll learn our customs and our ways. And then Babylon will become more of a home than their own place was. And, and this will work well for the king. It'll work well for the people. So what we hear this week now is Daniel had resolved he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine. And so he asks. He goes to the chief of the eunuchs and he says, can I please not eat that? Um, we'll eat vegetables and drink water, but don't make us eat that food. And so the question then is, why would it defile Daniel to eat that food? And uh, I've always assumed, well, it was because it wasn't kosher. I mean, what the meat that might be on the king's table might be pork. It, it might be beef that hadn't had the blood let out of it or something along those lines. And so that's a possible answer is that it would violate kosher laws, except the wine doesn't. There's no kosher laws for wine. Now, today, modern Jews have kosher wine, but in, in Daniel's time in the Bible, there was no regulations on wine. So the kosher rules really wouldn't apply to drinking the wine. So why both? Um, the other theory that comes out is this idea of table fellowship. And the, the, the thought is to eat the food from the king's table is such a high privileged honor, it would be like making a, a, uh, an alliance, a, uh, um, a covenant with the king and saying, I'm yours, I'm, I'm one of you. And so Daniel is saying, well, I'm not going to do that. Don't, I don't want to defile myself by doing that. I'm not going to be aligned to the king of Babylon. Now, the problem with that is the only people who knew about it were not the king, not the chief of the eunuchs, but the steward. It didn't get all the way up, so nobody would know that he hadn't had this alignment. So it doesn't really answer the question of why he wouldn't eat that food. Why would it, why would it not be right? Also, it doesn't answer the word defile so well. And so the last idea would be this might be meat offered to idols. This could be meat and wine that had been given to idols and then brought in. As a matter of fact, um, in, in kind of an aside here, in the apocryphal book, Bell and the Dragon, it's an addition to the book of Daniel, um, there's this problem is, is there's an argument arises because Bell is said to not be a real god, but he eats food every night. And so they bring food into him, and they, they put it in his temple, and they seal the door, and in the morning they come in, and the food's gone. And see, Bell ate the food. 
Um, and so Daniel comes in and he looks around and, and as everybody's leaving, he throws sand across the floor in the temple. And they seal the door and the next morning they come in and the food's missing and the footprints go back behind the, the, uh, the um, altar and there's a secret door back there where the priests will come in and eat the food. I just find that funny. <laughs> you know, kind of um, uh, 6th century B.C. police detective kind of thing. Uh, so the idea was that the food would be given to the, ki- the uh, idols and then whatever the idols didn't eat, it would go to the king because you're not going to give the worst food to your god and you're certainly not going to give the worst food to your king who thinks he's a god. So they would get good food. So maybe this would be meat sacrificed to idols. And the thought there is, you know, you would want to touch that. A, a Jew wouldn't want anything to do with that. The problem with that is the vegetables would have been offered as well, not just the meat. So um, this really hung me up is why did Daniel feel that eating meat and drinking wine would defile him, but eating vegetables and drinking water wouldn't? And um, it, it's, not an ad, it's not advocating a, a vegetarian diet. Um, in the end, I think the safest answer is I don't know. And by the way, for all you Bible students, I don't know is a legitimate answer. You're, you don't fail if you say I don't know. You fail if you make up a bad answer. So then what do we get from this? What, what's going on here? Well, whatever it was, Daniel had resolved in his heart to not be defiled. So however he thought about this food, this meat and this wine, it would defile him to eat it. It would be a violation of his own conscience if he ate that. And so he, he asked, please don't let me defile myself with that. And that should sound a little bit familiar. It's not that long ago we went through the book of Romans. Please tell me you remember that. We did it on Zoom, but yeah. In Romans chapter 14, the big issue there was eating meat. If, if you eat meat and it makes your brother stumble, then don't eat meat in front of your brother. It was that kind of an idea. And in 1423, Paul says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So for whatever it was for Daniel, whatever scruple that he had about eating that meat and drinking that wine, had he done it, it would be a sin for him. And so what he says is, don't let me defile myself with that. Please just give us the wine or uh, water and, and vegetables and we'll be okay. Now, the, uh, he goes to the chief eunuch, right? So the, go to the immediate supervisor and he asks, and, and the answer is, I can't do that because the king will remove my head. And the idea was if I have been told, the king gave me a commission, bring these young men in, train them, feed them from my table, and then come and present them to me. So I come and I present you to the king, and you guys look shabby, and everybody else looks fine. The king goes, why do they look so bad? Oh, because I blew you off, and I didn't feed them from your table. Head's gone. He's like, no, no way, not going to happen. But Daniel doesn't give up. His, his conscience has bothered him to the point where he won't give up, and instead of going to the eunuch, the chief eunuch, he then goes to the steward. That would be the person who's just like in charge of day-to-day operations. And, and he talks him into it. He says, please don't make us do this. Just test us. Just feed us what we're asking. And if we look bad, if we're weak or something after 10 days, and we'll go back to eating whatever it is. That's, it's not a problem. Daniel was confident that if he didn't defile himself, the Lord would take care of him. He would be fine. And so that's what he did. They, they eat the food that was given to them which was vegetables and water now. And I love the way it says, after 10 days, they were fatter of flesh. 
the, the, the popular way that you think of people, whatever beauty is, is generally speaking what's hard to do. So if you go back and you look at, go to an art museum and you look at Renaissance painting, it's all fat women. They're all, they're all very large. Why? Because everybody was starving to death in those days. And so for somebody to be fat was to be rich and it, was, it would show that. So now we've got food plenty and so it's hard to not be fat and so skinny is really beautiful. So just give it a, another couple of hundred years and it'll change. Don't, don't worry about it. So when these youths come in, they look fatter of flesh. They're, they're more healthy. They're more vibrant. They're doing well. Physically, they're doing well. And so the, the steward goes, hey, that worked. <laughs> I might get a promotion out of this. And he takes their food away. He says, that, that the deal's done. We'll, we'll stick with this plan. So that, that's where they go. And so what happens next then is it, it, it doesn't have anything to do with food. The, the appearance thing comes and goes, and it's this major issue, but what gets them the job before the king is not the food, is not their physical appearance. Listen to what it, what it actually is, beginning in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king commanded them, they should be brought in. The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them... None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. They got the job, not because of the food. They got the job because they blew his mind. Any question that he brought up, they had more wisdom. They had more understanding. So they had drawn a line. They had said, this is something we can't go against. We have, we have this scruple. We have this, this conscience about eating that food, and we won't go there. But they did great in everything else. They, they got straight A's at Pagan University. They understood all of the Babylonian information, all the culture, all the heritage. And they could tell the king about it, and it was really amazing. So they, they figured out where they could draw a line and where they couldn't. And they stood by that. And I think that idea of saying, well, I'm going to draw this line here is part of the wisdom that they had is they knew they, wouldn't, they shouldn't violate their conscience. It's not safe. It's not right to violate their conscience. And so in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters who were in all the kingdom. The, the, the ten times has surely got to be hyperbole. How do you measure that ten times? Well, this was only that wise, but that's this wise. I, I don't know how you measure that. What the author is saying, what Daniel's telling us is, much better, ten being a number of fullness, of completeness. That, that I, that's the idea. And so they're better than all the magicians and enchanters in the kingdom. Those are the wise men. Those who are, remember when um, Moses went before Pharaoh and the, the, the enchanters and the wise men came and they, they tried to replicate his miracles. That's that same group of people. That's what they're trying to do. So when the king asks all these questions and they answer well, He's just amazed at how great they did. So what, they, what they've done is they have stood in this culture that they've been dumped in. They said, here's something we cannot, here's a line we cannot cross. We won't go there. All these other things will go along with because they're ultimately not going to be the end of anything. And so the question then is, how do we do that? How can we do that? Um, Typically, within Christianity, there's two 
very broad general approaches. And of course, there's you know, not binary, it's not one or the other, it tends to be grays in between. But generally the way that we approach it is, one of the ways is we compromise with culture to the point where we don't stand out. We believe this, but we're not going to, you know, we're not going to take a stand on it. We think abortion is bad, but, you know, I don't want to talk about it. Um, you know, those kind of things. We're, we'll just compromise to where you can't see them anymore. So I don't know if you remember a dozen years ago, I think it was, the emergent church. They tried to do that. They tried to say, well, we'll just, you know, substitutionary atonement's a hard doctrine. And so maybe we'll just let that slide. We'll talk about Christus Victor. Jesus just kind of won. He, you know, it wasn't that he, you know, cosmic child abuse or something. And so they compromise all these things. And the idea was we'll compromise on these and then we'll get more people to come in. Which, by the way, is like selling the tractor to buy the farm. You now have a farm you can't do anything with. It was a bad idea. So that's one extreme is compromise. The other extreme that Christians tend to go to is total withdrawal. We are just going to hive off. We're going to make our own little compound. We will come up with our own entertainment, our own everything. We'll have nothing to do with this polluted, this dirty culture. We will be pure and, and, and isolated from that. And, and these two extremes are, are what usually pulls at us, I think. I know I, find, I feel in my heart wanting to go either way on, on sometimes. They, they both kind of draw. What we see with Daniel and, and his friends is they didn't fall into either one of those traps, did they? They didn't compromise to the point where they went, oh, yeah, whatever the king says, we'll just do it. They said, this is something we can't violate. This food issue is an issue for us, and we won't violate that. So they, they didn't compromise, but they didn't isolate off and go, hey, we're, you know, we're in exile, but we want nothing to do with any of you. We're going to go hide. Instead, they found a common ground. They found a way to do this. And they did it in the highest courts of a pagan society. But they're not alone. They're, they're not the only people in all of Scripture that have done that. Think of Esther and Mordecai. They, they, Esther hid her, her Jewish identity. Mordecai didn't. And both of them wound up in, in great position in the kingdom. Nehemiah was working for the king before he went to rebuild um, Jerusalem. And then the one that really gets you is think of David. David did something like that. Yeah, when he was on the land from, uh, from Saul in 1 Samuel 27, he it says, 1 uh, Samuel 27, 2, Daniel arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moak, the king of Gath. The king of Gath. Gath was the Philistines. So he goes and he lives with them. And then the next chapter, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in this army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for uh, my life. So David is, is kind of compromised, isn't he? Now, don't forget, there's more to that story. While he was living in Ziklag, who the king, had, the, the city that the king had given to him, he would go out and he would raid not Israel, but other nations. And then he'd come back and the king would go, so what'd you do? And he goes, oh, we went and raided Israel. We didn't, but we, you know, we told him that. So he's, he's finding it, David's finding a way to live in this pagan society and not compromise. So how did, how did, how did um, Daniel, Hezekiah, I'm going to get the names wrong because I keep wanting to go, uh, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I can't get there yet because chapter 1 doesn't have them yet. Uh, how did Daniel and his friends do it? How did they stand? How were they given the internal resources to stand in that, that pagan culture? Was it family? They, they must have had a great family, a really good upbringing. Their, their mother and their father must have really instilled into them these traditional Jewish values in the law. Well, almost assuredly. I mean, they, that doesn't come out of nowhere. But when we consider the scope of the book of Daniel, we don't even know who the parents were. The closest we get is they're from the tribe of Judah. So while it is true, and by the way, parents and future parents, you better be teaching your children well. But that's not the point that, that Daniel is drawing us to. It's true, but it's, it's not the issue that Daniel wants us to see. Um, was it community? Maybe they had a good church that they were part of. They, they, they had a good family of uh, believers around them, supporting them and encouraging them. Probably. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't think they went into exile and just kind of disappeared. I, I, they must have been connected with Jews. But when you look at the whole book, they aren't mentioned. But, but there's evidence that they did because think about this. Jeremiah wrote a letter to him. This is from Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what he said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent from, uh, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat the produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that you may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So, he had a community that the Jeremiah the prophet wrote to them. But, you know, there's not another Jew mentioned in the entire book. Just the four that we know of. So Daniel is not drawing our attention to the need, the necessity of being part of a good church. And, and be part of a good church. When you move, when you go off to college, when whatever happens, find a good church, connect with it, and plug in and be part of that. You need the community to support you. But Daniel doesn't offer that as the answer. It's, it's good advice, but that's not the answer. So what does Daniel give us? How do we do this? Don't leave us hanging, Daniel. Well, actually, in chapter 1, he gives us a very clear answer. And it hangs on one simple word. We have to chase it through this, ver this chapter. The word is give. Just look at where we find what the Lord gives. Ch verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God gave the Jews into exile. He sent them into exile. So when we look at Daniel and we go, how did they wind up in this situation? God did that. God gave them that. That was what God gave. Verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. He gave him favor. Had he not given him favor, it would have been extraordinarily hard for Daniel to stand in light of this chief eunuch saying, no, you've got to do this. It he would have been either killed or beaten down or, or worn down, but God gave him favor. Verses 12 and 16, they were given vegetables. Why were they given vegetables? Because they asked for them to avoid defilement, and God gave them favor. So they were given vegetables. Verse 17, as, the f as for these four youths, 
God gave them learning and skills and literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. The word had is not there. It's implied from the verb, but read it without it. God gave them learning and understanding and all literature and wisdom and Daniel understanding and all visions. How did they pass the test? How did they get the job? How did they impress Nebuchadnezzar? God gave them that. The University of Babylon didn't do that. The chief eunuch didn't do that. God gave them that. So when they had to stand, when it was time for them to stand in this presence, in this, this fallen, this foreign culture that was bent against God, how did they do it? Well, they did it because God gave them. He gave them the ability to. He put all these things in their way so that they could stand. Now, they're responsible. They had to do it, too. They had to stand and they had to be firm. But God gave them all of these things to do that. So how do we do that? How do we do this? How do we stand firm when, when this is happening? We have put on the full armor of God and doing all things we stand. That's what I love about the armor of God. Everything they put on is defensive except for the sword. And then the command is, now stand still. <laughs> it is not like I saw a t-shirt that said something like, they call me pastor because there's no word for demon slaying uh, something, something. I was like, yeah, that's not in the job title or job description either. What are you told to do? Stand. So how do we, as a Christian church, as Christian individuals, in a culture that is, that is now taking a hard turn and moving very hard in a different direction? It was a little windy this morning, wasn't it? Anybody catch a little wind coming out of the car? How do, how do you stand still in that wind when that wind is howling and pushing in the wrong direction? How do you stand firm? Well, we do it the same way Daniel and them did. God has given to us. And, and what has he given to us? Here's the greatest thing that God has given to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God gave. He gave us his son. So we're supposed to stand because we have been given. We, we, you have been enabled to stand because God gave you his son. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you are called, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what are the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe. God gave you the spirit. He has given you that. God, Jesus promised that you would give it. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He gives. He's giving you the Holy Spirit. And he delights in giving you the Holy Spirit. You evil fathers who delight in giving your children nice things, God's not evil. And he delights in giving nice things to his children. And then John three thirty four, God gives the Spirit without measure. So how do you stand in this changing cultural wind, whirlwind that we're standing in? You stand because God gave you Jesus and Jesus gave you the Holy Spirit. So again, from, from um, Jeremiah's letter, Jeremiah says, addresses it to those whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God sent, he gave his people also. So when we find ourselves in these whirlwinds, of this cultural shift that we're going through, we go, why? Why is this going on? What is happening to our nation? What is happening to our great culture? It, it's in God's hands, isn't it? 
That's what the rest of the book of Daniel is going to show us as these kingdoms rise and these kingdoms fall. It's all in God's hands. We should lament. We're going to miss America that we knew. But we shouldn't be surprised that, that people are sinful and are going to go in sinful ways. God gave them. So God put us here. Why are you here? Because God put you here. He gave you to this culture so we can stand firm. And what Jesus does then is Jesus sends us. God sent his people into exile. Jesus didn't send us into exile. He sent us into the world. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. So where Daniel and his friends in in Jerusalem and Israel were taken away and sent into exile to be disciplined because they had violated God's laws, because they had turned against them, we are sent out to disciple the nations. They're sent into the nations for discipline. We're sent into the nations to disciple them because God has given. God has given us all of these things. God gave them into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, but he gave Daniel favor and understanding. God gives us his spirit without measure, a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so that's the difference. That's how we can stand in this cultural whirlwind that we're going through in these these raging waters that seem to be swirling around us, and it's a new offense every day, it seems, is because God's in control. He knew this was coming, and he's appointed us for this time and this place. He has given you more than he gave Daniel. He has given you his spirit, and he didn't give you just a little bit of his spirit stingily. He delights to give you his spirit. As a matter of fact, he gave you his spirit without measure. That's how we can stand in this. And that's really how the book of Daniel works is, It is God is sovereign. All the commentaries I've been reading say God is sovereign, but that's not enough. That's not the answer to what the book is because the whole Bible teaches God is sovereign. God is sovereign in the book of Daniel so that he can be active in our lives. His sovereignty extends. He he holds galaxies together. He holds the universe together. He raises up these these roaring nations, and we're going to see them in these terrifying images of panthers and bears and all of these strange creatures, and God is just sitting in heaven going, yeah, up, down, up, down, up, down. He's sovereign over all of that. None of that's beyond his power. And yet this God who controls all of these mighty forces cares individually about you. He gave to Daniel one little man, one teenage boy, he gave to Daniel wisdom and understanding and the ability to understand dreams. That's the extent of his sovereignty. Not so removed that he's not involved, but right down here with us. And that's the beauty of the incarnation. That's what, what's so beautiful about John 3.16. God gave his only begotten son. He came to be with us, to stand in this whirlwind with us, to be part of this with us. So can we stand? Can we, can we fight through this and, and ask our conscience, where can I draw a line and where can I compromise? Can we do this without saying, well, we're going to just, you know, put up a big huge wall around this building and we'll all move in here in the compound and hold hands and sing Kumbaya and the rest of the world can go to hell. That's not what Jesus told us to do. Let's go disciple some nations. That's what we've been commissioned to do. And so now our chapter ends with this wonderful statement, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So why was Daniel, let me ask you the question, why was Daniel there until the first year of King Cyrus? Because God put him there. 
because God, God rested him there. No matter what happened, no matter what came up, a lion's den couldn't stop it. He was there until the first year of King Darius. Can we be here until the Lord returns? That, that's our commission. That's our call. So with that, let me close this in prayer. Lord, we trust you. We believe that you have given the spirit without measure. Lord, we believe that Jesus came for us, that he died for us, that he is with us. Lord, we believe that Jesus is currently reigning from heaven. Lord, we believe that Jesus will return and reign on this earth. All these things we confess. Lord, would you sink that reality into our hearts? You have given so much to us. And Lord, I pray for all of us that like Daniel, we would have the resolve to stand where we need to. Give us the wisdom and the understanding to see where those lines are, where they have to be drawn and where they're not. And Lord, may we be loyal to our king who reigns over all of these roaring nations that rise and fall before him. Lord, give us confidence in the kingdom to come. In your name we ask.